0: Aloha, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak. Welcome to The Body Show. Each week we talk about health and fitness, but none of what we discuss replaces a visit to your own primary care provider. Vaccinations, they're a part of what has helped mankind live to an ever-advancing age and are to be thanked for ending such epidemics as smallpox, polio, measles, mumps, rubella, the list goes on and on, and we're still fighting some of these conditions. And yet, even with that basic science knowledge, some people are still reluctant to have their appropriate vaccinations when they're due. Flu shots, shingle shots, pneumonia shots, HPV shots, hepatitis, it might seem like a lot, but here to share the benefits, we have Dr. Andrew Kroger. He is from the National Center for Immunization and Respiratory Diseases, Office of Infectious Diseases, from our very own Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC. The big guys that make all these really important health recommendations for all of us now tonight is a taped show, but we're incredibly lucky to have Dr. Kroger here with his busy schedule, his sharing his expertise as one of the preeminent medical scientists with immunizations here in the United States. Dr. Kroger, welcome to the body show
1: uh, Aloha, and thank you very much for being here for having me here.
0: Oh, I'm glad to have you here. you know I'm a big proponent of vaccinations and basically. What I mean by that is I think vaccines help people live longer if we can prevent certain serious diseases. And I know there's a lot of thoughts in the community about appropriateness of vaccinations, but, you know, scientific evidence suggests that vaccinations can help save lives.
1: Absolutely. I mean, vaccines are one of the most effective public health interventions that we have.
0: And. As a result, what we're, what I'd like to do is sort of talk a little bit about different age groups of people. There's new vaccinations that have come out since when I was a kid. There's new shots that are now out for adults. There's recommendations for different pneumonia that are now out for adults. There's recommendations for different pneumonia shots. So what I'd like to do is sort of pick an age group of folks, talk about some of the common vaccinations, talk about the schedule that's done for it, and kind of just... We'll, we'll call it myth-busting in a way. Figure out what it is that helps people to understand the importance of vaccination. Also know why kids get different shots at different times. And to know when they need to take a look at this list and maybe update it if necessary. So you've got some expertise in the field of pediatrics. You did a pediatric residency before going on and doing preventative health before going on. And, you know, you have your master's in public health and you have your MD degree and now you're working at the CDC sort of the center for all of this information to be disseminated, let's talk about pediatrics. Let's talk about kids. Kids get a lot of shots, and we try and give them those shots to help boost their immune system so that they don't get these infectious conditions or diseases. What are the most important or what are the most common shots that are given to the pediatric world?
1: So actually, we recommend uh, 13 vaccines for the prevention of 16 vaccine-preventable diseases, in children and that's from really birth all the way up through 18 years of age. The vast majority of those are really given to the young child population. Um, I think I'd like to start by talking about um, vaccines such as influenza. I think that's a really, really important vaccine. Influenza season occurs every year. Um, We have some new recommendations this year. We come up with new recommendations every year. It can be very complicated the schedule changes, um, and so we like to try to clarify those things. And that's kind of one of the things that I I, I do. Um, it's I'm flu season, educator. right? It's perfect it's flu timing. Season, so let's talk
0: flu shot. I got mine. I heard it's pretty good this year, or so we think.
1: Uh, we think it's good. Yeah, we think it's good this year. We're seeing a lot of disease right now. We'll know more as the season comes to a close how effective the flu vaccine is. Um, it is generally effective in sixty percent of the healthy population, um, so it's not our best vaccine. But what it's important is it's very important in preventing the complications of flu. And I want to start talking about this vaccine in the context of children because it's very important that while we have a lot of vaccines available. This year, we did have some issues with our live attenuated influenza vaccine, and so we do not recommend that vaccine specifically. We recommend the shot, the inactivated influenza vaccine, for all age groups. But I think this is a a particularly pertinent new recommendation that is coming for children. And the reason we made this recommendation for this season is in two of the past three seasons, we saw reduced effectiveness of the live vaccine against one of the common circulating influenza strains. Um, In all three of the past three seasons, we saw better effectiveness of the inactivated vaccine when compared to the live vaccine. The effectiveness of the vaccine varies year to year, but we saw a clear trend with the live vaccine compared to the inactivated, the good news is, is that we have plenty of inactivated vaccine to make up for the replacement of live vaccine for inactivated. So I wanted to just kind of get that vaccine out first, because that is a major topic and a major thing that we want to share with providers with with that vaccine in particular.
0: So basically, the, the old flu mist, the one where you could go ahead and use it as a nasal spray as a vaccine, that's not as effective, at least not what we're seeing this year Despite the fact that nobody likes shots, that's the recommended way to get the flu vaccination for kids because it's the inactivated virus, more effective in the body, able to mount this immune response and get protection than if you kind of went the whole nasal spray way. That way is not going to work this year.
1: Correct, um, and and the manufacturer is looking into the reasons why. It's still not known for sure yet the reason for this. Again, there is a lot of variation year to year in the effectiveness of the vaccine. So. Um, providers are going to have to stay tuned for the upcoming season. It could it could come back, um, uh, but we don't know yet for certain. Um, uh, so I think that's that's what I wanted to talk about first was the influenza vaccine. Now there are a number of other important vaccines for children. You have inactivated vaccines. You have live vaccines. Um, talk a bit about. I think one of the very important live vaccines that's recommended for uh, toddlers is the MMR vaccine, measles, mumps, and rubella. Um, This vaccine is uh, important to talk about because the diseases for which the vaccine is preventive, uh, specifically measles and rubella, are not seen very much. Providers don't see the diseases. So it's hard to really understand or get a sense of how important this vaccine is. In truth, measles is only a plane ride away. Uh, MMR is measles, mumps, and rubella. Mumps, a plane ride away. Uh, So it's very important that we vaccinate uh, our one-year-olds. It's a two-dose series of a dose at one year of age and a dose at four years of age. Measles, mumps, and rubella. Um, another toddler vaccine that's uh, very important for one-year-olds is varicella vaccine, chickenpox vaccine, um, You know, a disease that um, we uh, have seen tremendous reductions in with the use of the vaccine since 1995, but very important.
0: Sure. I had chickenpox when I was younger. Don't get the pox because that's not fun at all. I remember getting it. And in fact, if you get immunized against varicella, you can't get shingles.
1: Uh, we, you don't so. we don't think so? We don't. Right. We don't know that yet. That's right. Because those, shingles those when kids they older, in the 1995
0: haven't grown we, up to be that age yet. Yeah, but if you
1: stop sh- because shingles is reactivation mm-hmm. of chickenpox, if you prevent chickenpox, you should be preventing shingles later. And chickenpox also is uh, a very important uh, vaccine to talk about because, in spite of the fact that we were all miserable, I was miserable with chickenpox. It was so common that people tend to think of it as a benign disease, but really, we did see. Before we had the vaccine available, 20 deaths a year in the U.S. from uh, chickenpox. So we can see, you know, it can be a deadly disease. um, And the deaths that occur, you know, occur in healthy children. So it's not just an issue of those being immunocompromised that are at risk. So you can't forget about chickenpox and the fact that we have a vaccine. Another vaccine for toddlers, hepatitis A vaccine. I want to talk about this vaccine. We recommend uh, one dose at 12 months of age and then a second dose at uh, 20, uh, sorry, at at 26 months, six to 18 months later is when we recommend the second dose of that vaccine. Try to get it before the second birthday. But when you get that first dose of vaccine, you should get the second dose as well. You do want to complete the series.
0: Well, and that's important because you know in Hawaii we had a hepatitis A outbreak that occurred, and one of the things that was noted is that it wasn't really happening in children, and it was because most children were immunized against hepatitis A, and it was the adults who weren't. When I was young, you know, I didn't get Hep A vaccinations because it just wasn't part of the childhood series. I didn't get varicella vaccinations. I don't think we had it yet, and so looking at that when you get one shot you have some protection but to complete the series the reason you get a second shot is because it boosts up your immune system and helps protect you in the future now when you get hep a vaccination is there is there a time when it wears off once you're immunized are you immunized for life do you have to consider boosting that later if you're you know 20 some years later you go traveling is there any change in that recommendation so far
1: we don't think that's going to be necessary for hepatitis A. We're looking in, into that, but I, we've seen such success in reducing the overall numbers of disease counts that we're, we think this vaccine is very effective and hope to not need to make recommendations for older age groups. We're, we're, there's some discussion about that, but as it currently stands, no. two and you're done. Two and you're done. And you know if you don't start the vaccine series by two years of age, there are limited recommendations for its use. It becomes more of a high-risk recommendation. But if you do start the vaccine before the age of two, you should you should finish it. Um, going back now to the infants, because there's a, lo- a lot of vaccines recommended for infants. So now go, from birth through the f- uh, first birthday, of course, there's hepatitis B, which is a vaccine given at birth. Dose number one needs to be given at birth. Um, Why so early? So the reason we uh, recommend a birth dose of hepatitis B vaccine is to prevent um, maternal transmission. When a mom has hepatitis B, she can transmit the infection, what we call perinatally uh, during, during birth, uh, to the child. And the vaccine is effective in preventing that, more effective than the other products that we had before the vaccine, passive antibodies. A vaccine itself actually works in an emergency type of situation to prevent an infection from taking hold in in a, in a neonate. So the birth dose is very important. It is a three-dose series, so you have to finish the remaining two doses. But make sure that the uh, child at birth gets that hepatitis B dose. It's the only vaccine we recommend at birth. Um, and then, if, and then we have, there are several vaccines that are recommended at the two, four, six-month uh, uh, age groups. Um, And then with booster doses later on after the first birthday, uh, such vaccines, diphtheria, tetanus, and pertussis, um, the inactivated polio vaccine, the uh, Haemophilus influenza B vaccine are, are a few to name, pneumococcal conjugate vaccine. There are many, and most of these vaccines are inactivated. They require multiple doses to get that good, strong immune response um they need to be given in infancy because that is when we that that is you know that is when children are at the risk of those diseases that's it's why we exposure, recommend sure. the doses. so it's,
0: you wouldn't want to have i mean kids play outside kids play in dirt kids play around stuff that maybe they wouldn't necessarily be doing as an adult tetanus is something you can get from rusty metal it could be out there you want to protect somebody cuz don't get tetanus, you might not survive it. I mean, that's a bad one. I've seen only a few cases of tetanus, and they have not been in the United States. It's been when I've done work internationally. We don't see it so much here because we're so good at preventing this when kids are young. Pertussis is another one. That's the protection against whooping cough. That's that characteristic kind of cough that, if you've ever heard it, really does sound like a whoop. But it's something that we also, and we'll talk about that again for adults, Mm -hmm. because there is a recommendation to booster that. But, you know, these are conditions and medical problems and infections that can occur in kids, and they spread so easily, which is why we want to prevent them. Now, we've made a distinguish between inactivated virus and live virus. Why would we want to do... What's the difference between the two? I mean... My thought is inactivated means I can't get it from that particular vaccine because it's not actually a live virus. Whereas a live virus, could you potentially get it, or you say a live attenuated virus, which means that it couldn't really infect you, but enough to boost your immune system. Why aren't all vaccines inactivated or live attenuated? How do we make that dif- that distinguishing difference?
1: Um, so an inactivated vaccine is generally either a complete dead organism, or it can be a fractional part of Proteins an organism. Proteins in the surface or something, okay. Um, it can be a toxin produced by an organism, so it could be, but it's generally an inactivated, you know, non-live component of an organism um, that has been identified as responsible for causing an immune response. Um, and requires boost do- booster doses. They generally require more doses with the inactivated vaccines. Um, live vaccines, on the other hand, are attenuated, as you mentioned. That means they're weakened. Um, they've been passed um, in, uh, uh, you know, in in cells and kept alive, but weakened through that process. So yes, these, these vaccines cannot cause the disease that they're designed to prevent. Um, they sometimes can cause the symptoms, and that is indicative of an immune response. When when someone has those symptoms, um, it's actually a sign that the vaccine is working and generating the immune response, um, but always preferable from the disease itself and cannot essentially cause the disease. Um, uh, we heard that a, a lot, a lot of discussion about that with both the inactivated and the live influenza vaccine. I think it's important to emphasize that neither type of vaccine can cause the disease itself, an activated or live. We're going to say that a couple Um, of times. Yeah, You can't
0: get the flu from the flu shot. It's not physically possible. Now, if you get a reaction to the flu shot, it could be that you're getting what I, I I tell people, I tell patients, super immunity. So that if you had a little reaction to your flu shot, it was not as bad as if you got the flu. And now your body is building up more antibodies and helping to protect you with that. So- don't fear it if you have a little bit of body aches or a little fever, because it's not as bad as getting influenza, trust me. And it actually is a sign that the, that the shot's working, because you can't actually get the flu from the flu shot. You can feel bad, but that's not the flu. True?
1: It could be a reaction to the vaccine. There are actually three other things it could be as well. It could be a, a virus besides influenza that sure. you wouldn't expect the vaccine to to prevent anyway. Um, you know, we, it's you could catch something else. Viruses are not always diagnosed routinely. a sure. Specific virus, so it could be another one of those viruses. Uh, it could be influenza itself. Um, I've mentioned that the influenza vaccine is sixty percent effective. That means it's you know forty percent will still be infected with influenza. Although we hope the symptoms are are milder. But it wouldn't be from it. the shot. It's not from the shot itself.
0: It would be and coincidental.
1: A, a fourth reason it's not from the shot. Or another rationale for what the illness could be is it does take two weeks for vaccines to work. And so we target vaccination you know, during influenza season. Perhaps someone did get the flu and then they were vaccinated after that and then they had the symptoms after that. So the symptoms were not caused by the vaccine, it's just that they were infected, then they received the vaccine. Sure, coincidental,
0: coincidental. and that's really the key, because I have a lot of people who tell me, I don't want to get the flu shot, because I always get the flu from it, and you know what we term as influenza, medically... As physicians is a little different than the lay terminology for, I've got, quote, the flu. Our definition is influenza infecting, causing certain characteristic symptoms, and it usually is associated with severe fevers, body aches, headache, maybe a cough, but not really productive. Most influenza is not going to give you sinusitis. It's not going to give you symptoms of bronchitis. Other things could do that. Secondary complications of influenza could, but you know, a lot of people think the flu is any anytime they have a common cold. So when we talk influenza, we're talking very specific.
1: It's, it's, fe- it's fever and cough or sore throat. That's really what we're – those are the cardinal symptoms of influenza. You can have myalgias as well as that, and then there can be complications. But, yes, other viruses can cause those types of complications as well, like pneumonia. But the symptoms itself, fever – and then cough or sore throat. And and the fever is a high fever. It's like 101 Fahrenheit. Right. Like We're not usually. talking 98.8.
0: Um,
1: and that happens the first time you're exposed. You know, once you're – if you're exposed to the same strain, you'll probably have a milder case the next time around. So that would be flu as well, but it's milder. So –
0: All right. We're going to take a quick break after that. You can't get the flu from the flu shot. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with Dr. Andrew Kroger from the Centers for Disease Control. We're talking today about immunizations and why it's so important to get them and what they can help protect you from. When we come back, we're going to talk some more about vaccinations and we're going to kind of head up the age group. So we've done a lot of pediatric issues. We're going to talk adolescents, and then we're going to talk adults. We'll be right back after this quick break. Stay with us. (音楽)
1: Thank you.
0: Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak, and I'm here in the studio with a special guest, Dr. Andrew Kroger, coming all the way from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. He is an expert in vaccinations, and today we're talking about different ways to protect against getting these really uncomfortable, could be in some cases life-threatening illnesses that could plague kids, adults, and adolescents, anybody in any age group, but we're talking about the importance of vaccinations. Now, before the break, we are going, I'm just going to mention it again. You can't get the flu from the flu shot. So we've we've said that about 10 times. I think we're good. But there's a couple more vaccines that we didn't talk about for pediatrics yet. These are new. These are things that maybe weren't around when I was a kid. Rotavirus vaccination. How long have we had that one?
1: Um, so the current vaccine for rotavirus that we're using now was first recommended in uh, 2007, um, uh, it is a live vaccine, so it is one of the few live vaccines we recommend in infancy. It's an oral vaccine. Um, there are two brands. One is a, uh, given in two doses. One is given in three doses. Generally, two and four months, and then the other one brand has a six-month dose as well um, for prevention of a disease that causes gastroenteritis. Um, uh, number one cause of severe diarrhea uh, in the world. So a very important vaccine that we have added to our, our list.
0: So the symptoms of actually getting rotavirus would be the severe diarrhea, dehydration, et cetera. Is it, is it something that's pretty common here in the United States?
1: Absolutely. It's it's Everywhere. almost ubiquitous. Everyone gets rotavirus. In fact, I don't want it. Uh, providers sometimes get rotavirus uh, that, you know, i I I don't want rotavirus. Yeah, for all right. Patients, pediatric and pediatricians, they know about rotavirus as well. They get it from their patients sometimes. But the good news the good news is is that this disease doesn't cause the same severity in this country as in other countries. We have the tools to um hydrate. Um but yet we still will see a few deaths from we did see a few deaths from rotavirus you know, prior to the use of this vaccine. Um, So it's a very important vaccine that we have. By the time a child um, uh, is about eight months of age, they don't get it anymore. And that's an important principle to mention as well. Some of these vaccines um, are recommended in childhood and then you don't need them anymore after that. Um, So that'll be kind of a a trend as we talk further. Some of the adult vaccines that we're going to talk about Um, will be ones that you start in adulthood and other ones are ones you're going to need to catch up on if you miss them in childhood.
0: Well, like I know when I was young, I didn't get hepatitis B shots. My first day of medical school, They gave us shot one. They said, if you can't prove it, you get shot one. We're going to do it again, shot two a month later, shot three, five months after that. Because when I was growing up, that was not part of the routine vaccination series. So it just, you know, now I'm entering this potentially high-risk profession where you have to have immunizations. But, you know, when I was younger, I didn't. So sometimes I'll see adults that'll say, I'm sure I got that when I was a kid and may not realize, hey, you know what? Probably not. It wasn't around then. And so that's, that's another issue. That we have to, that we have to sort of educate people about. I didn't get a rotavirus shot. I don't want rotavirus, but now I probably won't get it. But you know that wasn't around when I was a kid. I got chicken pox. I did get a varicella shot, so that just wasn't around. I was born before mm-hmm. ninety five. Um, there's a couple of other ones that we'll talk about as as we get into the adolescent category. Another really important one, which technically can be given to preteens. Let's talk HPV. Mm-hmm, Why are people so afraid of that?
1: Um, You know, I think that there's – HPV is one of these vaccines that we kind of, you know, created a universal recommendation for all people slowly. We started to recommend the vaccine for girls first and then for boys. I think the the best message to share with respect to HPV vaccine is this is a data-driven vaccine. Um, We have – it's a vaccine that prevents uh, a viral infection, human papillomavirus – uh, the virus uh, it causes cancer, different types of cancer, cervical cancer, other anal genital cancers, vulvar cancer, vaginal cancer. Um, it causes genital warts. It causes oral cancer. So it causes a number of cancers. Um, it is a sexually transmitted infection, So and people are aware of that. But I think the main message is, is this is a virus that causes cancer, and we have a vaccine to prevent it. Um, we make our recommendations for this vaccine uh, based on a number of reasons. In terms of the timing, our recommendation is to start the vaccine series at 11 years and 12 years of age, 11 or 12 years of age to start it. It's a three dose series. Um, the one reason for that eight choice of age is that there are a number of other vaccines we recommend in adolescents as well, and we'll talk about those in a bit. Um, we it's a vaccine that like all vaccines prevents illness and so it has to be given before exposure to illness occurs um and you know the vaccine is licensed as young as 9 years of age and for girls it's as old as 26 years of age and for 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 males it's as old as 21 years of age all of that is data driven it's based on the risk of um of acquiring uh the virus um or you know, beyond that age, a vaccine is not preventive anymore. People have acquired the virus already. So it's, it's driven by the burden of disease. That's why we choose when we should vaccinate with this vaccine. Um, it's an extremely effective vaccine, 95 to 100% effective for prevention of, you know, cervical cancers. Uh, we, we basically, you know, measure uh, uh, cervical cancers before the cancers occur, the the common screening tests that are used are what were used in the trials. Um, They take a while to develop. When people are infected, it takes a while for those lesions to develop. So when you do a trial, you're going to get a lot of data on prevention of these laboratory outcomes in in the older uh, adolescents. We have seen antibody responses, which also measure how effective the vaccine works. The antibody responses are higher in the 11 to 12-year-olds compared to the older adolescents. So that's another reason why we choose 11 to 12. You give the vaccine at a younger age because it's more effective at that age as well. Um, So I think that's the key is this is a vaccine that prevents cancer. It's effective, and we need to use it. Um, We do have a new recommendation as well, was voted on recently by our government advisory group um, for a two-dose series of this vaccine. Um, There's basically one manufacturer now that produces this vaccine. It's called Gardasil 9, and we have a recommendation for two doses instead of three in those who start the series between nine years of age through 14 years of age. If they can get that first dose then, we've looked at the antibody levels, and if you give the second dose a full six to 12 months after the first dose, that will give you an antibody level that we believe is high enough to provide the same protection as the protection that we know the three-dose series gives to the older adolescents. Um, So this is a good thing. This is a way to complete the series earlier and another major uh, kind of take-home message that I wanted to share uh, today.
0: Well, that's a big thing, because when you get to a certain age, one less shot, you're going to be happy. And as you get to those adolescent years, you really do want to go to your pediatrician all the time and listen to everything mom and dad says. I'm absolutely certain of it. No, you don't want to do that. So having one less shot, great. But you have to make sure that, you know, the two keys are that you get it before you get exposed. So get the vaccine to prevent the the introduction of this virus with no immunity, because like you mentioned... 20, 30 years later, maybe not even that long. It can cause cervical cancer and other types of cancers. But the second reason is your immunity is better when you're younger. Lots of things are better when you're younger, Andrew. I I, want to be younger. It's just not working for me.
1: Well, definitely we see it with this vaccine. So, um, yeah, I mean- Get it when you're younger. Get it when you're younger. Get it before the risk exists. Um, Just make it a part of the routine adolescent vaccination uh, complement. You know, it's, you know, meningococcal vaccine- Tdap and HPV are, are the the big three, along of course with the influenza vaccine, which has to be given during influenza season.
0: Well, and I always tell parents who say, "Well, I don't want to," you know, "in I don't want to give my nine year old or my eleven year old a vaccination for something that is sexually transmitted," because I know they're not doing that. And I'm like, you know, you gave him hepatitis B shots at birth, and that's actually a sexually transmitted infection. So, why have that stigma against HPV if you know you can prevent it? In fact, I honestly think let's fast forward. Let's say everybody gets their HPV vaccination. What will be the need to do pap smears? Pap smears are to detect cervical cancer. If you have no exposure to HPV and you've gotten your immunizations, at some point, that particular test may go by the wayside because it may not be medically necessary for certain groups of individuals who've already been vaccinated. The pap smear was never designed to do anything other than detect cervical cancer. And if you're not going to get the virus, that may actually make that test something of the past. Now, that's, you know, thinking forward in the future, but it's still possible.
1: With the newest vaccine, we can prevent um, infection with particular strains of human papillomavirus that cause 85% of cervical cancers. So there'll they'll be the, the 15%, 15% okay. but that's a huge but 85%, burden of disease I mean, that's removed, yes.
0: You know, a lot of people from Hawaii go to Vegas, and if you were going to go play a particular game and they're like, you have an 85% chance of winning, lots of people would play that game. So, you know, thinking about HPV, there's been this this slow uptake of HPV vaccination across the nation. And hopefully we'll be able to turn the tide with that. I think making this a vaccination recommendation for both girls and boys is a key element of it. Um, But in addition, you know, nobody wants genital warts either. I'm just telling you, having seen some in my office, you don't want those, don't get those, get the vaccination. Now, I'm curious, it has an age cutoff. You said 21 for men, 26 for, for women. What if you were older and wanted to still get the shot? Is there just because it may not work because statistically you might have already been exposed? Are these reasons why, you know, you're 40, you can say, I want that shot, and you still can't have it?
1: The reason for those age cutoffs have to do with the burden of disease and, and basically reflects the ability of manufacturers when they're studying the vaccine to show that the vaccine works. So, you know, manufacturers have had difficulties showing that the vaccine works in females older than 26 years of age um, or for males older than 21 years of age. So they've um, actually due to prior studied, infection, it, they've and studied it.
0: they just, they haven't found they the efficacy. Did,
1: right. And so they limited the licensure to those age cutoffs. And so CDC has followed the FDA with respect to that age cutoff. Now, there's a couple important points, though. Um, there are certain groups for whom the burden of disease is higher, specifically men 22 through 26 years of age, men who have sex with men, um, immunosuppressed men, which includes men with HIV, they do have a higher burden of disease. We make a full recommendation up through 26 for men with those risk factors. We're also permissive with our recommendations for how providers use this vaccine in spite of the cutoffs by the FDA. We do say that you know, the vaccine may be administered to healthy men, but 22 through 26 years of age. We've already talked about the nine-year-olds and 10-year-olds We make a permissive recommendation to to use then as well. So it's, and then if, if someone receives the first of the three doses before that final age, we do recommend completion of the vaccine as well, which is another important point. And lastly, you know, the, the decision to use a vaccine off-label is an option that providers have as well beyond those age cutoffs. It requires a conversation of risk between provider and patient.
0: And, you know, informed consent. If they really right. want to get it, if there's definitely a reason. If there's some extenuating circumstance, okay. But if you have started the series, finish the series, what if you only half did the series? What if you got one out of the two or two out of the three? How much protection are you going to get?
1: You know, it's tough to say because we haven't been able to effectively correlate the antibody level with specific protection. So we don't – I mean it's better the, the more doses you have um, and we want the series to be completed. And we know how challenging that can be with a you know a three-dose or a two-dose series. Um, uh, so I think the important message is you need to complete the series – You'll have some protection, but we don't know how much. We don't know how much it will last. Um, And so, uh, very, very important. I should also mention that, um, you know, with respect to antibody levels, if someone is immunosuppressed to begin with, regardless of the age at which they start, they should receive three doses of the vaccine and not the two dose series. So, again, it's reflective of, you know, the antibody levels, which we know the higher the level, the more protection you have. We just don't have a way to tell the percentage of protection.
0: Well, and that's why you said it's a data-driven vaccination. We have the data now to actually be able to determine what is the most appropriate age, how much, uh, what is the efficacy, how many shots do you need, what are the exclusionary criteria. You know, they didn't necessarily have that ability to collect all of that intricate level of data for other vaccinations. Now we can go back and retrospectively do it, but we're talking real-time data collection. So it certainly, it behooves anybody who is in within those age groups or has children or grandchildren in those age groups to really take a close look at HPV and see if that's a vaccination that should be obtained. And if so, encourage those in those age groups to complete that series.
1: Absolutely. Yes. They should recommend it just like all the other adolescent vaccines. Just
0: get them done. Protect yeah. yourself. meningococcal that's a new one. Sort of new. I don't, I don't know if I got that one when I was younger. I think I did when I, again, in medical school, I got all these shots when I started. It was like, whoa, what's going on? But that's another one that's come about. Recommended because of potential exposure to, to meningococcal bacteria and also recommended kids go away to college, group living environments, et cetera. Who should get meningococcal vaccine?
1: So, with respect to meningococcal vaccine, we're talking about healthy persons, as healthy adolescents, those going off to college, and before they get to college. So, again, vaccinate before the risk occurs. We're talking eleven-year-olds through eighteen-year-olds, and then first-year students in college or other um, educational, you know, institutions um, do need to receive uh, the the meningococcal conjugate vaccine. It prevents infection with four types of the bacteria which causes meningitis. That's one of the, one of the causes of bacterial meningitis. Um, and so uh, I should also mention that there are other groups for whom this vaccine is recommended outside of those age ranges. Um, certain conditions, uh, patients with a lack of a spleen, patients with HIV infection, um, uh, patients that have other immune deficiencies um, should receive this vaccine. And their age range for those groups Uh, can be as young as uh, two months of age and extend up through the lifespan. Um, So uh, another kind of indication of the complexity, there are those age-based recommendations for those that are healthy, and then the age recommendations for those that have high-risk conditions.
0: Well, and I think if we're talking about your average healthy young adult, then you're talking about getting this vaccination prior to exposure. And is it one shot? Is it two shots?
1: It's a, a two-shot dose. It's it's a shot and a booster. And so you want to have your first dose. We recommend 11 uh, or 12 years of age for that first dose. If you are a little late on that first dose, um, we'll consider that dose a primary dose between 13 through 15 years of age. By 16 years of age, we want everyone to have a, at least the booster dose. So um, you're going to have two, one or two doses. We hope to. So get your first one between 11 and through 15, preferably 11 to 12, and then make sure you get a booster after the 16th birthday. Colleges often require a dose after 16 years of age, uh, so there's no reason not to get that second dose after 16 years of age. Um,
0: Try and get your primary one before that, but definitely get a secondary one in the region. The reason college is recommended is because it can spread rampant through a college if people are not immunized, particularly group living environment, close quarters, in class all the time with these people living in smaller spaces, it can cause a serious problem.
1: That's that's how we believe the bacteria is transmitted and those close living conditions. Um, we think that's that's part of it. Actually, most meningococcal disease is sporadic and not part of an outbreak. But when there is an outbreak, there's a lot of attention to it because it's such a deadly disease.
0: Absolutely. All right, I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with our special guest, Dr. Andrew Kroger from the CDC. He is an expert in immunizations, and we are talking about what vaccinations are required through the age ranges. When we come back, we're going to talk a little bit more about adolescence. We're going to move into adults. If you've heard about getting a booster to your pneumonia shot, or if you've heard about getting a pertussis booster, we're going to explain why, and we're going to talk about when you should consider those things. We'll be right back after this quick break stay with us Welcome back to The Body Show. I'm Dr. Kathleen Kozak here in the studio with our special guest, Dr. Andrew Kroger from the CDC. We're talking today about immunizations, and we've kind of gone through quite a lot of information thus far in pediatrics, adolescence. We're going to finish up adolescence, talk about adults. But for those of you who want to see this in physical form, the CDC actually on their website has some fantastic resources. They have a great list of – I use it all the time for patients who see me – travel vaccinations that are recommended, but they also have a great list of vaccinations recommended per age, so that if you're not able to take notes or if you want to reference something, you can always go to cdc.gov G-O-V, and you can find lots of great resources there. I bet, Andrew, you probably helped write some of the resources there, but some great information out there for anybody who might not have caught the whole show or might just have a couple more questions about timing of different vaccinations. Now, we've talked about Pediatrics. We've talked about adolescence. We've talked about HPV, meningococcal vaccination, tetanus, diphtheria, pertussis. That kind of crosses adolescents and adults a little bit. So let's kind of cover that now. Adults are being told to get a whooping cough booster, and adolescents are given their shot right around, I guess, maybe around tetanus, around the age of 12 or so, Mm -hmm. maybe 12 or 14. So they go away to college, and as they're graduating or as they're getting towards their senior years, they may not realize it's time to get that booster of a tetanus shot because it is given about every 10 years. So I think... I see a lot of folks who go on advanced schooling, whether it be nursing school or medical school, and they don't realize that they needed to get that booster right around that age, around the mid-20s or so. What is so important about keeping up with tetanus, diphtheria, and pertussis?
1: So we do recommend uh, tetanus vaccination every 10 years as a booster vaccine. We've already talked about the diphtheria, tetanus, acellular pertussis vaccine in infants. It's generally a five-dose series from infancy through um, young childhood. Uh, You need to maintain the tetanus protection, maintain the boost doses, because tetanus is a disease that will never eradicate. It's in the soil. There's no way to get rid of this bacterium. So we need to provide that protection throughout life. Every 10 years is something that most patients and providers can kind of keep track of, although, as you mentioned (laughs) It Sometimes can fall it off slips. the chart. Absolutely, it ten it years slips. is a long time, but that. So um, your tetanus,
0: you keep up to date.
1: Tetanus has to be every ten diphtheria. years. Diphtheria, diphtheria. It's we don't have a vaccine that only has tetanus and not diphtheria. So it you comes have to have, together. You come can get together them both, and and good to have because diphtheria, you know, it still you don't exists get outside the United States. It does. So. You know, it's again, it's a plane ride away, (laughs) in a sense. Like uh, like particularly
0: here, we've actually seen people who have come from other locations who have come infected with various illnesses. That I'll be honest, you know, and I give a lot of props to some of the pediatricians. As an adult doctor, I don't see people come in with a lot of these. I don't see people coming with measles. I don't. I remember seeing it, complex spots, in medical school textbooks. I don't know if I'd be able to identify it if I saw it when it came in off the plane. So, you know, we do have that particular unique exposure here in Hawaii. A lot of people travel, go to the Philippines, go to other locations, go to other developing countries, and come back, and may not realize even some of the even some of the Pacific may not realize that they have this exposure that that poses a risk. So. You keep your tetanus up to date with your diphtheria. The pertussis, after you get your shots when you're young, there is a time when you boost it as an adult based on a recommendation that all adults should get a booster because we actually saw that it was the adults who were getting whooping cough, surviving it, doing great, no problem, but infecting the kids.
1: Right. In 2005, we made a recommendation for the use of the adolescent slash adult Tdap vaccine, which provided the tetanus and diphtheria, but now combined with the acellular pertussis component. So similar, not exactly the same vaccine, but very similar to the infant vaccine, DTAP. This provided a dose of, uh, of pertussis protection. The reason we needed this vaccine is that immunity to the infant vaccine wanes with respect to pertussis. It only lasts about five to 10 years. So that protection needs to be boosted. Um, We've looked at Tdap vaccine. Um, We recommend that one booster dose. We've looked at giving additional booster doses of Tdap. And we've really been unable to show much of a boosting effect with additional doses of Tdap. So what we recommend is really one substitution booster dose with Tdap. Now, there's a very important exception to that one-dose rule for adolescents and adults, and it has to do with pregnancy. And so the issue is is that pertussis, as mentioned, can be a nuisance in adults. Adults survive whooping cough. Um, it can be fatal for infants, especially infants between birth through three months of age, when they may not have had enough doses of the infant vaccine. Remember, you have to boost and give multiple doses of that vaccine. So they're the ones that are vulnerable to pertussis. It's a fatal disease for for the youngest infants. So how can we protect them? Well, we're continuing, of course, to recommend the infant vaccine, but we have learned that by giving a dose of Tdap in pregnancy, you can protect the infant from the antibody response that the infant uh, shares with the mother during the pregnancy. And so the infant is born with protection from vaccinating the mom um we've measured it in the umbilical cord blood there are antibodies there they last they don't have to last long they have to last till 4 months of age so that they just provide that additional protection to the youngest infant um and it works and it's the be- one of the best tools we have to prevent infant pertussis right now is making sure that mom receives a dose now because the vaccine wanes the impression wanes you can't just give one dose to a mom, and that'll, you know, that benefit does not accrue. You have to vaccinate in every pregnancy. That can mean a lot of doses, depending on how many times a woman is pregnant. Um, you know, it's generally not that many times on average, um, but it is safe, and it's an inactivated vaccine. And we recommend, you know, extra doses of Tdap vaccine. I think have been given to uh, non-pregnant adults there's not a safety issue at all. The reason we don't recommend it is because it's not effective. But in the pregnant mom, it's both safe and extremely effective for protecting that infant. Um, Very, very important.
0: Well, and you've just explained something really important. I had a To me, I had a patient call me and say, my OB wants me to get another Tdap. You told me I only have to do it once every 10 years. Why do I have to do this? I just had a kid two years ago. Why am I getting it again? And my response to her was, because your OB knows what he's doing and go with what he says. And then I looked it up and I went, oh, right, because the baby can get the immunity, but it has to be with each pregnancy. So- Good news. I know some good OBs out there that are doing just that to give those infants that protection until they start getting their own immunizations with the with the pertussis in their Tdap series or their DTap series. So there are people out there doing that, and that explains why.
1: Yeah, that's great. And and the ten year cycle starts again, so it's it's not so really if that they many don't get doses. pregnant right
0: in that many years, that's fine. But if they got pregnant two years ago and now they're pregnant again, there is a reason. Get the TDAP because you're protecting each pregnancy, each child in that pregnancy, each time. So, Mm -hmm. mom, you're not going to get hurt. There's no such thing as too many immunizations for TDAP, and your baby could seriously be in a huge decrease in the risk of them getting whooping cough. It's a great thing.
1: Yeah, we're talking about a sore arm and, you know, uh, contrasted against, you know, lots of all difficulties. Yeah, it's. I mean,
0: give me the sore arm. Mm -hmm. Exactly. All right. So let's talk about some adults. What's up with the new pneumonia vaccination? Because everybody got a bunch of you know, n- pneumonia shots, and then they're told it's for life. Now they're told, hey, go get this Prevnar shot. Uh, why?
1: So in the late 70s, early 80s, we had a vaccine for adults for prevention of... It, w- it, wasn't, it wasn't pneumonia prevention at that time. It was preventing uh, bloodstream infections with the same bacteria that can cause pneumonia. Um, and it was called the Pneumovax, the pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine. That was the, the vaccine that many uh, people may know about. It was recommended for adults 65 years of age and older. Yep, gave
0: out a bunch of it in my office, lots of it. Everybody got this Pneumovax. And then what happened? Uh,
1: so we uh, manufacturers developed a technique to create a vaccine that generates a longer-lasting immune response that's Prevnar, that's a conjugate vaccine. It uses the same piece of the pneumococcal bacterium, but they, which is a sugar, and they, they combine it with a protein, and that creates a longer lasting immune response. And this, the Prevnar vaccine was recommended for children first in, in the year 2000. Um, uh, it It required booster doses, of course, but after that booster dose at Um, one year of age, it generates a long-lasting immune response, very effective immune response as well, Um, for the prevention of invasive, again, bloodstream infections. Um, Since 2000, um, moving through till 2012, uh, we expanded the use of Prevnar. Uh, First, we expanded it to adults who are high risk. They may have Cancers, they may uh, lack a spleen. They can benefit from a dose of Prevnar as well. Um, so that's an that's an, another dose recommended now for adults. Um, and then in 2014, we began to study this vaccine not for prevention. Manufacturers studied this vaccine not for prevention of uh, bloodstream infections, but for pneumonia itself. Pneumonia, a lung infection that may not have a bloodstream infection associated with it. And that's that's really important because most of the deaths are due to pneumonia.
0: Not necessarily having it go to the bloodstream. It would be just when it's in the lung.
1: They, They occur in adults 65 years and older. But, you know, we're talking... Uh, 500,000 as opposed to a couple thousand. Um, So the burden of disease, uh, the implications of determining whether this vaccine can prevent pneumonia are huge. And a study was done in the Netherlands determined that the vaccine is effective in preventing pneumonia. It was 45 to 50% effective, also effective, of course, in preventing Bloodstream bloodstream infections, infections, which were
0: nowhere near as much percentage-wise, but still fairly significant as far as their mortality rates. In
1: terms of burden of disease, the number of cases, yes. So we have a vaccine that does prevent pneumonia now. It's the conjugate vaccine. So we recommend both vaccines, actually. We recommend the conjugate vaccine and the polysaccharide vaccine in adults. The conjugate vaccine, because it is effective, produces a long-lasting immune response. The polysaccharide vaccine actually has um, and it more, sh- more sugars from a larger number of strains. So that's important as well. And we want to keep recommending the polysaccharide vaccine. So, so we'll
0: probably never combine two pneumococcal, them both.
1: Two, two pneumococcal you get vaccines. Two. So yeah. you
0: get one, the Pneumovax. You get one, the Prevnar. Now you're protected. You don't need to boost them.
1: Or so we more think. more or less, yeah, I mean, you have to make sure that uh an adult older than sixty five years of age gets a dose of polysaccharide vaccine, um an adult can receive the conjugate vaccine at any point between eighteen and older. We'd like to have it targeted to adults sixty five years of age and older um the healthy adults, and that's another it's it's healthy adults sixty five years and older. A dose of the conjugate vaccine, Prevnar, and a dose of the pneumococcal polysaccharide vaccine.
0: So you get both of those, you're good.
1: Yeah, you don't. You do have to space them. You don't get them at the same time. Get about the Prevnar a year apart, first, at least. Get Prevnar first, and then polysaccharide vaccine a year later.
0: Okay. Um, almost last, but not least. But we're kind of getting close to the end of our discussion, which I'm really pleased you were able to make time on your busy schedule to do. Let's talk about the shingles vaccination. It's it's Zostavax. It's been out since I think 2006 or so, really took off maybe about 2008, 2009. And it's something to help prevent shingles. Again, I think those varicella kids, the ones who are getting the varicella shots, if they never get exposed to the varicella bacteria, if you don't get chickenpox, you're not going to get shingles. However, um, shingles is a vaccine. It has a varying efficacy rates, but it's something that we do recommend. What's your take on the shingle shot?
1: So this is a vaccine for prevention of reactivation. Basically, someone already infected with chickenpox disease gets shingles later in life. About a third of all adults, if we didn't have a shingles vaccine, would get shingles.
0: Um, Yeah, one third of all adults could get shingles. By the way, it hurts. It's painful. And if it's on your face, it could affect your vision. Nobody volunteers for shingles. Don't get that.
1: No, and this is a vaccine for prevention of pain. Um, it's sixty-six percent effective for prevention of a complication, which is pain that can last after the rash goes away. Shingles is a uh, localized rash; it looks like chickenpox, but it's not all over. It's in a, in one spot generally. Um, sometimes, when the rash goes away, uh, you still get pain. You still get the pain. So this is a pain vaccine, um, and it's a very um, since it's such a common disease. It's a very popular vaccine. It is recommended for adults 60 years of age and older. Uh, it is a live vaccine, like the chickenpox vaccine is live. The shingles vaccine also is a live vaccine. Um, and uh, it's one dose. Um, and uh, there are manufacturers are working on another type of vaccine that is inactivated. Um, we anticipate that vaccine being available in the not too near uh not too distant future. Uh, I think within a year or so, we may even have uh, some recommendations for a new uh, shingles vaccine. A lot of work to be done in, in terms of kind of deciding how we're going to recommend the use of that vaccine. Um, but it's, it's nice to have an inactivated vaccine as well. It seems to, from the uh, studies that have been done, it seems to be very, very effective, more effective than the live vaccine.
0: And potentially you might get both.
1: That those that hasn't been decided yet. Um, there are going to be adults who have already had the live vaccine. So some decisions are being made right now about what to do in those circumstances. Um, so we'll.
0: So we'll have to have, we'll have you to back. Wait. Stay tuned. For Absolutely, that. Yes, exactly. we'll have to have you back. I want to tell you that you know, Doctor Andrew Kroger. Uh, expert in immunizations from the National Center of Immunization, Respiratory Diseases, Office of Infectious Diseases at the Centers for Disease Control. You're here for just a short period of time. I'm so appreciative that you're able to take the time to come do this show because you're here to educate providers and people about vaccines and the importance of it again if thanks for sharing your expertise with us if you'd like to hear the show again and there is so much good information i'm sure you're going to want to you can head to hawaiipublicradio.org follow the links to the body show our engineer today was david chong our executive producer Bethan kozlovich i'm dr kathleen kozak i'll be looking at cdc.gov checking it out we'll see you next week on the body show thank you, thank you.